Yeah. All I have in this world is my balls, my word. The African anteater ritual. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Someone should tell that girl, you don't have to take your clothes off. Amanda Jones is no minor leaguer who will be swept off her feet at the touch of your amateur lips. Oh, me, Mr. Butterfingers. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. I love you guys. Hey, 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 it's the big master control program everybody's been talking about. I'm so sure. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another episode of A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill. A look back at our favorite decade, the 1980s. On this episode, we do the stream of thought kind of thing, covering such topics as Miami Vice, mullets, Phil Collins, a video game starring the members of the band Journey, Flock of Seagull Hair, Mexican female bodies stuffed inside gringo jeans, and lots and lots of fashion. But to get our reminiscing kicked off, a discussion about the dawn of the synth keyboard. I just remember being exposed to electronic and analog synthesizer sounds and music like from a real early age. I, I started playing cello when I was really young. I started in third grade. That was when you know my teacher introduced me to you know Walter slash Wendy Carlos. Doing... I, I never knew that until you told me earlier today about that. Yeah, yeah, that was our. Uh... One of our first transgendered musicians, I guess. But, you know, he was doing classical music on the Moog synthesizer and, you know, it had these insane sounds. I remember the Airwolf theme song. And I remember the theme song to Chips. I know you've mentioned that before about the opening theme song really just pulling your trigger. Well, just, I mean, I don't know what it was, but it, I mean, the, the, the song's straight up disco. I mean, it's full on strings and, and everything, but I mean, there's this couple really good analog synth parts in it, and for some strange reason, I mean, I just loved it. It, just, it was like, you know, I watched that show as a kid religiously. I remember I came on, I had my Matchbox car, police motorcycles that I would play with you know during the intro and i mean, I just i love the axel f from oh, yeah. beverly hills cop like harold faltemeyer right. who did a lot of stuff with Giorgio moroder who uh-huh. big 70s guy but i mean you know he just you know obviously produced the latest daft punk album so uh-huh. he's enjoyed a little resurgence maybe this is another thing that would make the 80s more unique especially because of the synthesizers is that they were creating sounds that had never been heard before you know where before all that you had you know, your acoustic instruments and you had them played different ways you have like your irish ballads and your eventually in america you the blues and the country and all that but it's still playing more or less on the same uh, instruments and then with rock and roll you got the electric guitar and the electric bass that was kind of cool and different and there were some different sounds there but man with synths i mean you could unlimited amount of how long you wanted to fiddle with knobs. Well, precisely. I mean, it all depended on your signal flow, what you patched into what. And, I mean, you know, you were creating sounds that you might not ever create again. That's, you know? Yeah, that'd be the frustrating thing. How do you, you, you take the settings, I well, guess? Well, you know, there was, uh, that was the biggest thing with analog synthesizers, being able to 
save or recreate the sound. You know, it came down to even, you know, Keith Emerson had templates cut out mm -hmm. of the knobs, and for a particular song patch, he would go and, and the keyboard tech would mark where the knobs were set. For each song and, and whenever they were going to perform that song they'd have to go and reset everything you know whether it was for a session or a performance right. or something you know i mean that was the only way that you could recreate that sound if you set the knobs the same way but even then it wasn't always going to be exactly the same you know i mean especially if you're looking at modular synthesis with patch cables and you know i mean you're running uh, it's, those, those it's mind-blowing but at the same time it's so exciting yeah. for me anyway and I just I think just growing up with that too and, and being in Florida as well I would go to Disney quite a bit at the end of each night they would do the Main Street Electrical Light Parade and electro-synthomagnetic musical sounds the Main Street Electrical Parade and that was all Moog synthesizer you know from beginning to end and it was all these Disney characters and floats that were all trippy and blinky and lit up. The Miami Vice, the Jan Hummer, you know, theme for that. Miami Vice. I love that show. First of all, other TV shows, if they play music uh, from different artists, they'll always have someone else singing the song for them. And you would know it's like, oh, that's not Michael Jackson or uh -huh. that's not Cindy Lauper singing that song, you know. So it was it wasn't original, and I guess because they was trying to keep from getting sued, yeah. So they they never would play the original artist. But when Miami Vice came on on Friday nights, they played Phil Collins and stuff like that. So I was like, whoa, nah, this is the show I want to see. You know, the the very first episode, the pilot episode, which is like a two hour thing, and it's almost like a movie in yes. itself. And I think it's coming in the air tonight. That's like an intense part of that show. And it's, I don't know if it's the first time, but I think a lot of people cite it as the first time that pop music was used as a soundtrack, like on purpose, not just incidental music. Then, you know, when it first came on, you know, the they showed parts of Miami and Don Johnson was like very cool with a rugged look and he wore t-shirts and blazers, uh -huh. and shoes with no socks, you know, Rico Tubbs, you know, he had the, the like the shark suits on and he was suave and every week, you know, he was in bed with somebody, you know, showing his, his um, furry rug chest all the time. And, and women, they like, oh man, that's, oh my God, did you see that? You know, you would go to stores and you hear people talk about it in the store. And women like, did you see Phil Mamatana's chest? Oh my God, that bear chest, oh my God. So do you have a furry chest? No, I don't have no furry chest. I, <laughs> I never had a furry chest. I just thought something you, weird about that. You know they can do that with surgery now. You can have it transferred from your, your butt or someplace. <laughs> I might let him transfer it up here, man. Uh, oh, you are kind of losing, huh? Yeah, that. yeah. Got a regular smorgasbord here, dope. Hey, pal? You know, and Miami Vice. Miami Vice was it for me in the 80s. Uh -huh. Don Johnson. And then to see him 
and you know Philip Michael Thomas. I mean, he was just so gorgeous. It's the furry chest, right? <laughs> yes, and the no socks. That was so cool. The, no that, socks. But in reality, isn't that kind of gross? <laughs> no. That's, that's cool. But the it's sweat, cool even now. I mean, the sweat gets cool. in your shoe and ruins it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the whole point of it's like you're making a statement. I am too cool to wear socks. It's the irreverence of it all. Yeah, I think it's cool. If you got a nice, nice. brown or tan shirt mm -hmm. and some slacks, put on some shoes, some canvas shoes, yep. or loafers with no socks. What you need socks on for? And that is all because of Philip Michael Thomas and Don Johnson. Mm -hmm. Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas will always look good to me. I don't care how old they are. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. Your husband's sitting right there. <laughs> He understands because he's a big Miami Vice fan. He he would understand it if, oh if, my gosh, yes. if you left him for Philip Thomas or Don Johnson. <laughs> well, first of all, I'd never do it. But he would understand if I kind of lost it if I saw him in, in, you like, in, your bra in person. At him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would totally, totally. That, you had like the Miami Vice fashion. I love that because yeah. you know you had like the Easter egg T-shirts, <laughs> right? The Easter egg color, the light pink and the light green and the light yellow, and then you had the jacket over. But you, you had to have the long sleeve jacket pulled up to your elbows. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I still that's like one of my things. I, if I have a long sleeve shirt or jacket on, I pull it up to my elbows. It's just like, habit, even at funerals. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, other, the bad thing that came out of the Miami Vice fashion was the uh, boat shoes with no socks. Oh yeah. Because basically every room you walked into, everybody's feet stunk. <laughs> yeah. Because nobody ever wore socks because it wasn't cool. You know, we have Don Johnson to thank for smelling a lot of nasty feet there for about five or six years in the 80s, I guess. It was one jacket I had, the Michael Jackson jacket. Yeah, all the zippers, uh -huh. the red one he had in uh, Beat It. So you have one? Well. I had like a, <laughs> a generic version of it. Right. Uh, my parents couldn't afford the original one, uh -huh. so they got me this black one with different zippers on it. Uh -huh. Hey, I thought I was cool, man. Did your classmates agree? Agree, because you know I had matching uh, loafers to go along with it. See, I had nickels in my penny loafers. Oh. So everybody else had pennies in their loafers. I said, you know what? I'm gonna do something different. I'm putting nickels in my loafers. You had some uh, really cool pants back in the 80s. Yeah, parachute pants. I like those pants that had the zip on the side and they opened up and you know, uh -huh. just kind of, I don't know what they called those. Were they expensive? They cost about $30. When you wore them the first day at school, how did you feel? Oh, I, I just felt hip hop. I mean, it was fashion, you know, the, you know, it was kind of a competitive thing too, because <laughs> everybody else wanted them. Did you get kudos? Yeah, of course. Did anybody hate on you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, some people even thought I was too skinny to wear them, <laughs> but that's why they were called parachute pants. Right. <laughs> they were baggy, they made you look bigger. I was in rural Illinois. Right. Really, so really rural. The town I lived in was 350 people. Went to high school in the, in the neighboring town, which was probably 350 in the high school. 
So if it wasn't for MTV or People Magazine, I don't think the 80s would have hit Coelho until the 90s. A lot of farmers. So people really didn't get out of the box. It was a small box. They didn't wear like pastel coveralls or anything? Or? No. No. A Don Johnson have been a farmer. But I would take sweatshirts, cut the arms off, cut the necks out of, you know, and bandanas were, were hot. You could put a bandana around your neck, around your ankle, around your, your calf. So Yeah, why? I, had, why? I always wanted that. I had a lot of that. And, you know, my buddy just yesterday we had lunch, and he was going through his photos on his tablet, and there was one from him, and he had four. From his calf to his ankle. Wow. He had a black black and white checkerboard. He had a Budweiser, a, a red, you know, classic bandana and something else. Trusting that these bandanas were solely utilitarian, would he like sweat his, like wipe his brow like that? <laughs> With his leg up in the air or what? Crazy. I don't know. It was weird. Now, I do know that I would mix that with imitation parachute pants because I, <laughs> <Imitation. laughs> I couldn't afford like real uh, parachute okay. pants so somewhere I came up probably with the dollar store uh-huh. was just vinyl pants almost like wearing a hefty garbage bag <laughs> with elastic at the waist and elastic at my ankles oh man and so they go when yeah. you walk I was the alibi for one of my friends and so I was with her Alibi? Out and about, yes. So she could go to her boyfriend's house. Oh. And so we got to the boyfriend's house and they went into a different room, but I could clearly hear him say not to bring the kid to my house oh, again. Oh, wow. But it was because of... Your pants? It was because of those pants in combination with my bandanas oh, yeah. <laughs> and, my, and my sweatshirt. You know, because there weren't many people doing that in that area. One? But, you know, I thought I was Billy oh, Idol, one. so I thought yeah. I could pull anything off. As far as fashion was concerned, I wasn't very fashionable. I used to go to school and I used to think that my school friends were fashionable. They were the ones that had the, the pencil skirts. And the pencil skirts used to come down just above their knees, so you could see their knees. Or you could see in the skirt as well, the pencil skirt also had like a, a slit, either in the front or the back, maybe of about two or three inches in the front or the back or at the side, I wasn't allowed to wear any of that sort of stuff because my parents were really strict. So I had the sort of skirt that went over my knee and there were no slits in it. And the girls that were more modern, they used to wear the tank tops and things like that. I couldn't wear a tank top on my... What I had to do is I used to wear my button all the way up to my neck on my shirt because we had to wear a uniform. And um, they used to call me a boffin. When you put your... Your, your shirt right up to your throat like that, you button it up, you're called a boffin. But I always got lots of um, uh, comments about how well I was dressed. You know, underneath I was thinking, you know, these girls were so much more fashionable than me. But my mum, my she used to uh, she used to make clothes for me and that was in a fashion, that was a fashion in itself because she made clothes that were like, um, had lots of gathering on it, had lots of ruffles and um, tears on it. Sometimes some pretty lace. They were all, they were all like, well, not quite maxi, but they, they were long and they'd have puff um, shoulders. So I think that that was kind of fashion in, in itself. You gotta look short, short, and you gotta have no illusions. Just keep going your way, looking over your shoulder. So in, in Mexico, did like all the the kind of pastel, I guess, fashions and 
music and that type of thing. Did that hit Mexico? Yeah, that did. You were living like a real poor area, weren't you? Well, the thing about the town that we lived in, it was in southern Mexico. It was Chiapas. It was San Cristobal. And it's, but it was a really big tourist town. Like, there was more pop culture. Okay. There Come was more American culture there than possibly in other parts of the country. Because it was a small town, and the Americans that lived there, we knew. Mm-hmm. You know, they would travel back and forth. My parents had four kids. Mm-hmm. We weren't poor, but we were four kids, four growing kids. And right. so if I would have been a normal kid, I would have gotten a lot of hand-me-downs from my sister. But my sister was extremely thin and tall. Mm. And I have never been thin or tall. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to be either now that I... Oh, that's so sad. But, I mean, it became a big thing, like the guest gene. It was a thing, like, you either had it or you didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I remember some of my friends that, or some people that I knew, not, I wouldn't call them friends, some people that I knew, like their houses were just shacks, but they had, everything was brand name. That's interesting because I, I remember that too in, in my Boonville. Yeah. You had people that living in trailers and, and things, but they had fashion for some reason. And my mom, I think her maybe her theory was that was why they were still living in a trailer because they were such a slave to fashion <laughs> well that was my dad too he was like you, know, you see what the car they drive you see where they live you see what their house is like yeah. it's because you know they buy their kids he's like we still shop at kmart and you know at that time selena gomez was not marketing at kmart is she marketing now yeah I remember ripped jeans was cool. Everybody yeah. had ripped jeans. And you sit and think about it now as an adult. And how intelligent was that really? You paid like 50 or $60 for a pair of ripped jeans <laughs> when you can get them at the Goodwill, you know, for... Pre-ripped. <laughs> pre-ripped for 50 cents. Yeah. But yeah, they, they charged extra for the ripping. Who was the guy, you know, wow. that had that job at the jean factory? I'm the ripper, you know. I seem to remember the the lead singer of Def Leppard. And I, I want to say it was Pour Some Sugar on Me. Right. Well, that's the first time I'd ever seen jeans that faded and that ripped up. <laughs> and apparently his girlfriend like put it to the wash like 50 times. Oh, yeah. Well, see, yeah. yeah. Well, see, you could buy them pre-washed and ripped, too, though. You didn't have to do all the work yourself. Yeah, but, you know. But it was extra to have somebody else rip them for you. Right. I had to have before school started in 1987 with a Def Leppard Hysteria t-shirt and we went everywhere we went to Hills we went to Kmart Penny's we couldn't find it anywhere because I had these sweet pair of like powder blue spandex pants to go with my white LA gear tennis shoes so I needed that Def Leppard Hysteria shirt to finish my outfit that was gonna be my first day of school outfit and we looked and we looked and we looked everywhere and we couldn't find it and finally my cousin found one for me at the chattanooga kmart wow so i got my hysteria shirt and the first day of school i wore it to school and everyone's like oh where'd you get that you go to the show no i didn't go to the show but i got the t-shirt <laughs> and i didn't have to send off work you know like in middle age you can send off the t-shirts and all that stuff and i used to do that a lot but all of those t-shirts were really poor quality the knockoffs you got from kmart were halfway decent yeah and so you got kudos Hell yeah, everybody's like, that is so cool. They didn't so much care for my latex pants, but 
it worked with the shirt and the tennis shoes. So. Did the t-shirt have two armholes or just one? <sighs> two, of course. Sorry. And it was, oh, God. Bad Tim. Bad Tim. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Bad. <laughs> ah. <laughs> How dare you make jokes about Def Leppard? <laughs> Okay, so you grew up in Zimbabwe in the 80s. Yes. What are some of your better memories? If I think of the way it's changed now, Zimbabwe was, I mean, we had everything. We had, you know, the guys, the milkmen would come and deliver milk at the door and cheese at the door. You had the ice cream guys go past every time. We had everything. Now, it's it's very difficult. Now, I'm in South Africa. It's just very sad. Do you remember fashions? Yeah. What was something you thought you had to have? Um, I had to have the drop waist. I had to have the viscose. Now, what's um, a drop waist? Explain that. Drop waist is like, it'll be a dress, right? And mm. when it gets to the waist, it sort of gets, uh, you know, wider. Oh, poofy? And then, yeah. yeah, poofy, and then it, it goes back in. So it's like your waist mm. comes out and then goes back in. And yeah, right. that was a drop waist. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, the viscose a fabric. You had to have this, um, what do you call this, pants is wide, you know, layered uh-huh. pants. Uh-huh. It's one of those I needed to get. Um, so how hard was it for you to get? Did you have to like save your money or beg your parents? You know, with us, every end of the year is when you get new clothes mm. and you'd never expect it any other time. So uh-huh. it was normal to get new clothes only at the end of the year because okay. it's, the end of the year is Christmas time. Uh-huh. And your parents got what you asked for? Yes. Okay. I grew up more with my grandparents. Yeah, so I didn't grow up with my mom. I don't know. I think back then, um, it was not like it is now. We, we didn't demand as much. You know, whatever you'd, you'd be offered, you'd take. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, it's not the same as now. So when you got these, what was it? The, 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 the drop waist. The drop waist. Were you like the proud peacock when you went to school? Obviously, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you'd show it off and yeah, you feel like uh, you're fitting in uh-huh. with everybody else. Did other yeah. people have them too, I guess? Yes, uh-huh. absolutely. Right. And did your social status go up? a little bit or yeah yeah i'd say so <laughs> the thing i remember the most when you say 80s would be buying sweatshirts or t-shirts cutting the necks out, cutting the sleeve off, dyeing them and painting them. That made my mom so mad. We would even get a pack of men's t-shirts. One of them we would modify for a top, cut it off, use the neck that we cut out as a headband for a Madonna bow in our hair. And then the other two t-shirts cut the sleeves off and make a skirt out of it. So you had a whole entire outfit, a headband to match, and then your little slouch socks that went with, and all your colored O-rings that matched as well. So you made a skirt out of two t-shirts. A three-pack, so you got a shirt and a skirt. And uh-huh. then you dyed them all different colors. Where'd you get this idea at? You know, that would be my sister. Because we both sew. Okay. Now the sweatshirts, yeah, everybody was doing that. Buy okay. a sweatshirt, cut it up, make it off the shoulder. Flash dance, you know, that whole Right. Thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you make water come out of the ceiling? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was a click you have your little friends and everybody we'd get together and make our outfits everybody pick a color and everybody would paint or Uh design them and yeah i remember my first year in college though yeah okay i was the bomb because i had the painted (laughs) shirt the matching skirt the socks Uh everything that matched alternating colored earrings the whole thing take your passion 
I don't know if you guys remember this, but muscle t-shirts were big then. Yeah. <laughs> I had so many muscle t-shirts. That was just the coolest thing. You know, I had to be even cooler. So what I would do is I would cut the collar into a V. Yeah. It was cool. And I would always have on my earrings. It was it was a big deal. Because my parents didn't allow me to wear makeup, so I had to do something. Hollister, is that what it's called, that store? I mean, their clothes is like size one, and like you have like size 12. You have like a size 12 Mexican woman, and she will somehow fit into those jeans, and everything is pouring out of every which way, but she's got the Hollister jeans, <laughs> or she's got the Hollister shirt. They don't make them quite for Mexican body types? I don't even think they make them quite right for American body types. I mean, they make it for like, like a 14 year old boy yeah for like the one percent starving population of the united states <laughs> so i worked at ancline studios and my really good friend maria was there well we became good friends she was designing the scarves i was designing everything else that ancline put their name on in the studio and then when I was in the punk band, the lead singer and I started our own clothing line and we did really cool, like way ahead of our time clothing. Henry Bendel's actually told us that. So they didn't really take our clothing. They thought we were just too like a little out there at the time. But when I see what we did now, I just can't believe it was so ahead of the time. What I've come to see as a designer, all designers kind of ride the same wave. So, so a lot of times I'll get an idea and I'll think it's original, but there's a lot of other designers riding that same wave. Like high-end fashion, which is where I really started out was in high-end fashion. You're ahead of your time no matter what, and then the mess catch up with you. But when we were designing our own line, we were just in our own world altogether. We were in like a whole little rock and roll, own little world at designing clothes. And we would sell them from our house and people would come over and buy them. Oh, so you did sell? Okay. Oh, yeah, we did sell. We tried to take them to bigger stores, but we weren't savvy enough with when buyers are buying, for what season or anything. We just showed up with these clothes and they, they, we were so just not in sync with, with the whole design world and you know their timelines mm -hmm. and all of that but we were making a living selling the clothes that we were making wow. yeah yeah once i broke away from the band and then with the whole business fell apart the one thing about the 80s is that it was kind of anything goes somewhat i mean it was pretty wild were you excited by the fact that like people were kind of wanting the most unique possible? I, I think the 80s had its own styles. I mean, you could say that the same thing you just said about like right now with fashion. Actually, right now with fashion, I think is as eclectic and open-ended as I've ever seen fashion in a way. It's probably more so because I mean... It, more so now. Yeah, because you can now. Do, do whatever you want. Nobody, but the 80s had a look. Like, it had I, a uniform look of Yeah, because weirdness. so there was the punk thing going on, so you had that look, uh -huh. punk. I remember, oh my God, Patti Smith was such a big influence on me. Like, she was very, um, what's the word? Androgynous. Uh, androgynous, yeah, thanks. I saw her play at, um, it was on First Avenue. Music always, in a way, dictates fashion, you know, to a certain degree. So you had the big hair yeah. and the really, really big shoulder pads. And then, of course, it was Studio 54. So I had one good friend at a Parsons became like top model for Estee Lauder. 
And so it, when I would hang out with her, we could travel in that world of like Studio 54. And, and when I worked at Ann Klein, I would dress the uh, models for the fashion shows. They would pull us down from the studio, the design studio, when they had the big shows. And I would dress Jerry Hall and, and uh, who's Keith Richards' wife? Patty Hansen. And I'd be in the elevator. And I'd go up and down the elevator with all these people. Or It was so crazy when I think about it because these were like superstar models, superstar designers, and that was just my life. I remember these women looked like friggin' Amazons. I mean, I'm tall, but they would be tall like me and be wearing six-inch heels and just like leopard this and crazy mismatched clothes. Oh, they just looked so fantastic to me. I just loved it. Of course, the Adidas outfits, I had that, um, the Air Jordans, if you can afford them. Mm -hmm. uh, Did you have a Kango? Uh, no, I didn't have a Kango. I had a fake one. I had like a Rudy type cap, you know, mm -hmm. uh, from a Fat Al. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kango was, uh, that was the first hip-hop clothing item that I can remember being mentioned. And of course, again, I'm a kid from Indiana. I have no idea what a Kango is, you know. Oh, it was a very popular head. It was in a... Uh, it was advertised in Ebony Magazine quite a bit in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it was just a popular New York fashion. And there's uh, a little kangaroo on the, the emblem. Yeah, made famous by Run DMC and LL Cool J. UTFO and... Yeah, yeah. Kango Kid. Yeah, I remember all the people that wore Kangos and gold chains. That was one thing. We, we couldn't find nothing like that in Nashville. we go to the flea market and find mm -hmm. a fake one. Mm -hmm. We were just happy to have like a rope chain that kind of resembled the one, but... Did you ever have a car hood ornament? around your neck? No, no, I knew people that stole them. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of tacky to me at that time, but you know, it was cool. You know, they had the little uh, knockoff uh, Adidas jogging suits they, they sold at uh, flea market. I remember those, the Louis Vuitton hats, and you know, Louis Vuitton doesn't make hats and coats. They only make uh, luggage. Mm -hmm. But I remember um, there was a type of shoe that uh, the girls were wearing in the 80s there. It was called a winkle picker. Well, the thing is, in England, they eat things like cockles and things like that, and winkles. And the shoe was so pointed that you could use it to pick one of these winkles out of its shell. <laughs> now, what's a winkle? So that's where I think the name came from, a winkle picker. It's like a little, it's like a, like a fish type thing in a little shell. Oh, and, like, like a clam um, or a mussel? Yeah, that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, there was a funny incident. That, I mean, the, the girls, they had the ones that were always taller and looked so pretty. But my, I was always persuading my mum to get me some winkle picking. And in the end, she got me some, but they were kind of flat. They were like a one-inch heel. These girls were wearing like two-and-a-half-inch heels. It's like a one-inch heel. Um, but they were very pretty. They were brown. And we were not allowed to wear them out. My, my sister and I, we were not allowed to wear them to school. We were only allowed to wear them to church. Um, but what I did is I kind of hid it in my bag one day and I did take it to school and, and wear the shoes. But, you know, I think the, the girls were laughing at me a bit because they were kind of flat. But Now, hey, I got to ask for the rest of America. What is a boffin? Boffins like a person that just do everything that adults says. They're so prim and they're so proper and they don't do anything wrong. They're the goody two shoes, they would you. call me. Uh -huh. uh, we would be the ones that like uh, were very well behaved and 
addicted as we were told and I got called a boffin a lot. Do you go back to your reunions, both of you, like high school reunions? I miss my 10 and 20. We just went to my 30 last mm -hmm. year. Totally rocked it. We were the coolest people there. I bet. And do they remember you being cool back then but just didn't see it at the time? or Do they remember your garbage pants or whatever? <laughs> no, nobody <laughs> mentioned awesome. it. Nobody mentioned it. Nobody was surprised by my rhinestone-covered shoes either. So <laughs> awesome. I guess they just accepted it. Hair was different in the 80s. Mm. Uh, hair was bigger, which you don't see too much of men with mustaches. In the 80s, you could just wear just a mustache, and you was considered cool. Yeah, the thin mustaches too. That was kind of a Latino thing, I noticed. They had the thin mustaches, and and people like, oh, that's cool. But if you had a mustache today, you like you just step them out of a, a porn movie. That, yeah, molestache, they call it. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't, it just doesn't look right anymore. Yeah. They're trying to bring it back. They got these, um, these guys that are wearing the mustaches that look like they're from the 1920s. I'm not sure it's quite catching on, but there's, there's a few out there trying. Yeah. They're trying, but you know what? You still look weird. So did you grow a mustache? Oh, man, I had a mustache at 17. And I was proud of that mustache. <laughs> It grew the way I wanted it to grow, you know. I could uh, pencil it out, I could make it thick, and it was no problem. And girls, they loved it. Oh, you got a mustache, wow. Really, they didn't say yeah. that to you? Yeah, girls loved it. They thought he was cool. They thought, he's a guy, he has a mustache. Yeah, he's, he's a man. <laughs> yeah, you know, now you got to have a beard and full facial hair, you know, <laughs> and sideburns, you know, you got to have everything now. But. hairstyles in the age, you know, okay. the big hair, you know, girls would tease it out. They had to turn sideways to get into elevators, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. so big and hairspray. How was your hair back then? <laughs> it was tall. Okay. It was tall as well. <laughs> I used Aquanet. Oh uh, yeah. Wow. That's grandma hairspray. Just, it's grandma hairspray. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> do they still make that? Yes. They do, but the formula's different. Uh -huh. It doesn't hold like it did. Uh, it's because not Aquanet, toxic. you couldn't, you could barely wash out. I wanted my hair standing straight up, and so when I wanted it white like Billy Idol, but I bleached mine, and it was bright orange. So <laughs> I was close to being beat up, you know, my entire high school year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Bullies obviously were a big thing, and you were bullied just because of your look. Somewhat, a little bit. You know, being uh, having such a, a small school, you really yeah. knew everybody, and so I mean, there was a few. It wasn't terribly bad, yeah. but I did try to dye it back black and missed a big spot in the back, and I never saw it. <laughs> of course. So it took a long time for people to tell me that I had that bright orange, you know, circle. They just let it go. <laughs> that I have always had is big hair and I still have big hair now <laughs> and that's the one thing about the 80s that I love you know I get so I kind of get offended when people talk about big hair like being such a faux pas in the 80s I'm like what's wrong with big hair <laughs> I guess I would fit in in Texas you know 
<laughs> say everything is big in oh, Texas. Oh, that's true, yeah. But live life big. I would just fit in. Now, did you ever have a mullet? Now, I was, you know, I was going to talk about mullets. <laughs> I tried. I honestly did try to have a mullet. My hair, it would go down to about my shoulders, and then it would just start curling up. Oh, yeah. I could never get it long, and you know, long enough. But yeah, the mullet was cool. Everybody had a mullet that could grow one. And you know, in being in Southern Indiana, there's yeah. still quite a few rednecks walking around with mullets. They yeah, never they're still gave, rocking that. They never gave up that style. Yeah. So there's a lot of lesbians too that rock it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a whole nother subject there. <laughs> I walk along the avenue. I never thought I'd meet a girl like you. When I first started getting into in any way, before I had transferred my look or whatever, you know, I just had like this bad early 80s, 70s normal kid haircut, you know, slick down part on the side, you know, not long, not short, just kind of bad. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, you know, a flock of seagulls were coming in Nashville. No kidding. So that was going to be my first like new wave video concert. So I thought I would try to do, fix my hair like the lead singer. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, like we had like the, I don't know what it was in the Space Age Love Song video. Yeah. It looks like a dog in some way like the, 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 with the ears going yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't know how you describe it. But I heard he used like wax in his hair to make it do that, which he didn't. He you know, found later used Aquanet. So I was like boiling down candles and stuff and trying to make my hair do that. <laughs> it didn't work at all, so I had to wash it out. Unfortunately, I, I didn't try to wear my hair with wax stuck in it. Because even like, the lead singer from Flock of Seagulls would make fun of you. Like, <laughs> yeah. look at that guy. So you went and saw them in concert? I did, yeah. They put the Grand Ole Opry. I think it was the second concert I ever saw. Wow. I couldn't get away. Okay, so back in the 80s, there was an arcade game by the name of Journey. Oh, yeah. And there also happened to be a band <laughs> by the same name. And oh, yeah. What do you know of the story? Well, because Journey was the, like the hugest thing in 81, 82, 83, around the times that those two games came out. Um, so they figured they'd capitalize on that. And Arena Rock was huge, Journey was huge, so they figured they'd use like, one of the biggest bands in the world to do a video game, and they figured they'd make a ton of money, which didn't happen. Because well, the game sucked. Well, okay. Well, first of all, I mean, Journey kind of lent itself to that because mm -hmm. it was a lot of sci-fi covers and the big beetle and... It's a scarab. Oh, I'm sorry. A, a big scarab. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so it, I, mean, I can see it where they think, oh, we can make a video game out of this, no problem. Well, I think a lot of that was Neil Schoen and his direction of the band, the guitarist, lead guitarist, and uh -huh. he's always considered Journey to be his band. So I think a lot of that was Neil Schoen trying to be like, well, this is my band, we're going to make money off this. I mean... Kind of like they're doing now with the Steve Perry doppelganger that's going around singing with them. So Filipino guy. Yeah. 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 Now you're a fan. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you can say this. I can say. You can be that. critical. Oh okay. yes, I can be horribly critical to this band because when they're good, they're very, very good. And don't get me wrong, the Filipino guy is is cool. Mm. Arnel Padilla, I think he's all right. I'm like, but that's not Journey. I'm like. Even when Steve Vargeri was singing for them, it was more Journey than it is now. Because Steve Vargeri's voice was different enough from Steve Perry's to where it was like, you could tell it was a different singer. This guy tries to sound exactly like Steve Perry, and it annoys the hell out of me. So you think they should have just got a different sound and singer? Yeah. Okay. I think it should have gone on a different kind of way. It would have made the, a band a, a better band, I mm -hmm. think. Because right now they're living off the laurels of what they did years and years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And all their new stuff sounds like their old stuff. Mm -hmm. 
But back to the arcade game. I assume that you were a fan at the time, right? Of course. And so when the <laughs> game, did you know it was coming out, or how oh, did yeah. you hear about the arcade oh, God, game? Yeah. It was in all the magazines. Everybody knew that game was coming out. So, so everybody wanted to play it that was a fan. So what did you think when you first saw it? I remember thinking it wasn't as cool as like Pac-Man. And it took a, a lot longer time to get things done because the game was just so monotonous. It would just go on. You'd think you'd have a part done and all of a sudden the fan would just show up out of the work. You'd start all the way over from scratch. Did you waste a lot of quarters in it? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, I wasted loads of quarters because I was always trying to get Steve Perry back to the ship and make sure he had his microphone. So, <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, how much involvement did the band have, do you know? of? Not much. Okay. After looking into it, the band didn't have a whole lot to so, do with it. But Columbia had a big stake in it because they wanted to make money off of it. So whose idea was this? It was a fan's idea who was a game, a software person who developed games. And he decided that he thought of the idea to come up with the game and it went to Columbia because that's who was doing the band's music then and it, that's how it came about. And then the arcade game and the at-home game that you could play on the at-home system. So yeah. The Atari? Yeah, the Atari one was better, I think. It was a much better game. It was easier to play and you didn't lose any quarters. Data Age presents the world's first rock video game, Journey Escape. The concert's over. Now you must help each member of Journey escape through mobs of love-crazed groupies, shifty-eyed promoters, I can get you the and spooky no photographers. Said, no Find your roadies and manager got ten minutes and run for the escape vehicle and live to rock another day. Journey Escape for the Atari 2600 from Data Age. Journey had two versions, the arcade and then the Atari version, right? Yeah, it's it's commonly misperceived that Journey Escape is the home port, like Pac-Man and other games. Mm. In actuality, it's almost an entirely different game. So talk about the arcade game. The arcade game was released in 83, around the time by Valley Midway, which made, you know, Bosconian and all those big titles. And it was supposed to coincide with Journey's tour. So the idea was, like, they had this even picture of all, like, the kids, like, in line, like, to play the machine, like, you're at a concert, you know. And in the arcade game, what you're doing is you're trying to get the band members to their instruments because they're, they're missing. So Steve Perry has to get to his microphone, you know, and so forth. The drummer needs his drumsticks and they need their guitar and bass. And you have to get them and guide them up the screen, similar to the home little escape version. And once each one acquires it, you get your point and the next person has to go and all five have to acquire it. And then, then after that, you get an additional screen where then they go on their scarab and they actually arrive at the concert. The scarab. It was their vehicle in there and it was used in two of their albums in Departures and Escape, which was their arrival into the 80s. I see. If you read the Departures okay. LP slipcover inside. So they like to use that during the, their two main albums there. Mm -hmm. I know one of the, the innovations about the game was they had scanned or taken photos of the guys' faces. They are black and white digitized scans of their faces. And there's like different emotions and... Yeah. Uh, some so, are kind of, kind of silly with their mouth open, and so basically, like when they get like the roadie and things help them go faster, they get they get happier. When they get bumped by things, they would have facial reactions actually, mm -hmm. and it was the most kind of realistic thing you could have of imagery at the time onto them. But the only reason that they didn't keep the digital scans in was because they were going to have that a camera on the cabinet, and when you reached a high score, like in like Last Starfighter, you beat a high score, it would take your face picture next to your name on the scoreboard. 
Wow. Well, one or two people decided when they were beta testing this thing in a, in a test environment, it would be fun to flash the camera with their private parts. Uh. And so they had to say... Okay, where, where was the camera located? It was kind of like... You know how the cat has the screen there? Uh-huh. And kind of like up on the lip right there, uh, so it kind of comes down at you. Someone decided to kind of step up a little higher and flash the camera. Wow, they were tall. Yeah. Oh, they had long junk. Exactly. <laughs> so they had to take it down because they realized too many people are going to do that, and there are going to be people, right. pictures of people's junk on the high school boards. Right. You know, so that that's why they had to remove the digital scan. But they kept the scanner images of the band members in. But it was going to let everyone have a digital scan right. on your face when you get a The consensus seems to be yeah. that the game is not that great to play, but yeah. you're a contrarian fella, or you have your own yeah. mind, and so tell us your opinion of the game. Well, this is coming from someone who thinks that you know Atari graphics are superior to Xbox One graphics. So okay, yeah, yeah so sucks. I'm definitely con- as you say, <laughs> but uh, the game doesn't suck. It's the same as like so many other games. You're doing a goal. It's about a pop group, yes. And most things based on that generally don't come out as good, but uh-huh. it's fun, it's challenging, and it plays like separate ways, actually on a looped cassette tape. Mm-hmm. It was constantly rolling on it. So it was a lot of fun to play it. And when you got to the final stage, you had to help the band do their concert mm-hmm. as a roadie and keep people off the stage. And if you keep them off the whole time, you actually get this cool like concert and win the game. It was like a fun thing, like you were, like you were a roadie for the band. Okay, so let's go to the Atari home version. Which is Journey Escape. And that one, although it does go up on the screen, they are not getting their instruments. And they do not perform a concert in the end. So it's, it's actually a different game. You start with each band member, and all they have to do is get to the scarab. But they have to go around uh, obstacles, groupies, uh, sleazy promoters, paparazzi, kind of like, you know, wanting to take their photos everywhere. And then you have the little blue roadie guys, which look like blue aliens. And they give you temporary invincibility and just run through for a few seconds. And if you're lucky, you can find your manager, which looks like Kool-Aid Man, which we always called him. You know, like, get Yeah, him. I mean, he looks just like him. I mean, there's yeah. just... Me and my friend I'm surprised always, that Kool-Aid didn't sue. I'm surprised as well, because I played the Kool-Aid at Target and looks just like it. I'm uh, just, you know, we're always screaming, get the Kool-Aid Man. You, know, you always want to get that. And then you're invincible the whole way. You can just run up and get to it. And you try not to lose any as much money. Every time you hit a bad thing, you lose cash. The band loses money. But once all five members get to the Scarab, the Scarab goes off and you presumably they go to their concert and you won the game. I know one of the charms, as you mentioned, of the console version, the arcade version, is that the music. Yeah. It's a kind of an 8-bit version of uh, Journey's songs. But on the Atari version, can yeah. you hear Journey songs or they, melodies? Well, in the opening string, you get... Don't stop believing. Which actually, for some reason, I like it better in the um, Atari's sound version. I just I like it a lot. But you like it better than their version? Yeah. Oh, you if, would. if there was a whole version, <laughs> yeah. If there was a whole version of that, I would listen. I would absolutely put it on the cassette and play it around with yeah. it. But yeah, uh, you get Don't Stop Believing on the um, Atari twenty six hundred version. But the arcade cabinet plays separate ways on the loop cassette, and I believe you get you get Don't Stop Believing at the concert or some part. So. You said you were looking for a console. You wanted to buy one, right? I, try, I like to find the actual arcade cabinet. How yeah. much would that cost, do you think? I, gosh, I don't know. Some cabinets run like 1200 bucks. Mm-hmm. Some run in the, you know, 10000 Some run as low as a couple hundred. just depends on 
Do you own any? I don't own a full arcade cabinet yet, no. Okay. I'm trying to, that's I mean, exactly the one I want. Have you looked into like what the maintenance would be on something like that, if something went wrong? You do have to do a lot of soldering and repair on maintenance. But you know how to do that. Yeah, kind of. I know how to, I just gotta find one. Would you like to own the console and have it oh, in your house? That would be awesome. Even though it's a terrible game? Even though it's a terrible game, that would be awesome to go with all my journey memorabilia that I have. Uh, okay. So yeah, that would be really cool. I can have a journey room. Are you aware if either of these games were successful, like financially? My understanding was that they were not that successful, from what I heard, but I don't... It depends, because where I played arcade games, people did line up to play that cabinet. And my friend and I loved playing the, the home version, but the general consensus seems to be the opposite, that it was not the best idea by their opinion. I mean, even, even Steve Perry called it a, a dumb idea. I want to thank all my 80s kids today, including DJ Mindub, DJ Jatpuck, DJ Art and Soul, Kelly Harris, Angela Bushel, Falona Sabanda, Ken and Amy Wallace, Grace Guerra, James Boyer, Kay Shorty Bell, Kat Taylor, Carrie Mills, and Sanshiro Hanafusa. And if you need more 80s, check out our other podcast series, Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster. The In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile. Go to spuncounterguide.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Mm-hmm.